Chapter Twenty Six of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Luna. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Twenty Six The Body on the Beach. In the meanwhile, where was he? whose headlong passions had precipitated this catastrophe. Where was Thurston? After having parted with his confederate, he hurried home, for a very busy day lay before him. To account for his sudden departure and long absence, and to cover his retreat, it was necessary to have some excuse, such as a peremptory summons to Baltimore, upon the most important business. Once in that city, he would have leisure to find some further apology for proceeding directly to France, without first returning home. Now, strange as it may appear, though his purposed treachery to Marian wrung his bosom with remorse, whenever he paused to think of it, yet it was the remorse without humiliation, for he persuaded himself that stratagem was fair in love as in war, especially in his case with Marian, who had already given him her hand but now the unforeseen necessity of these subterfuges made his cheek burn. He hastened to Dell Delight, and showing the old man a letter he had that morning received from the city, informed him that he was obliged to depart immediately, upon affairs of the most urgent moment to him, and then, to escape the sharp stings of self-scorn, he busied himself with arranging his papers, packing his trunks, and ordering his servants. His baggage was packed into and behind the old family carriage, and having completed his preparations about one o'clock, he entered it, and was driven rapidly to the village. The schooner was already at the wharf and waiting for him. Thurston met many of his friends in the village, and in an off-hand manner explained to them the ostensible cause of his journey, and thus, in open daylight, gaily chatting with his friends, Thurston superintended the embarkation of his baggage and it was not until one by one they had shaken hands with him, wished him a good voyage, and departed, that Thurston found himself alone with the captain in the cabin. "'Now you know, Miles, that I have not come on board to remain. When the coast is clear I shall go on shore, get in the carriage, and return to Del Delight. I must meet my wife on the beach. I must remain with her through all. I must take her on board. You will be off Pine Bluff just at dusk, Captain?' "'Aye, aye, sir!' You will not be a moment behind hand. Trust me for that, Captain. See if the people have left. The skipper went on deck and returned to report the coast clear. Thurston went on shore, entered the carriage, and was driven homeward. It was nearly four o'clock when he reached Dell Delight, and there he found the whole premises in a state of confusion. Several negroes were on the lookout for him, and as soon as they saw him ran to the house. What is the meaning of all this? he inquired, detaining one of the hindmost. "'Oh, Master Thurster, sir, oh, sir!' explained the boy, rolling his eyes quite wildly. "'What is the matter with the fool?' "'Oh, sir, my poor old master, my poor old master! What has happened to your master? Can't you be plain, sir?' "'Oh, Master Thurster, sir, he done fell down into a fit, and had to be totted off to bed.' "'A fit! Good heavens!' "'Has the doctor been summoned?' exclaimed Thurston, springing from his seat. "'Oh, yes, sir. Jace been done gone after the doctor?' Thurston stopped to inquire no further, but ran into the house and up into his grandfather's chamber. There a distressing scene met his eyes. The old man, 
with his limbs distorted and his face swollen and discoloured, lay in a state of insensibility upon the bed. Two or three negro women were gathered around him, variously occupied with rubbing his hands, chaffing his temples, and wiping the oozing foam from his lips. At the foot of the bed stood poor, daft Fanny, with dishevelled hair and dilated eyes, chanting a grotesque monologue, and keeping time with a seesaw motion from side to side. The first thing Thurston did was to take the hand of this poor crazed but docile creature, and lead her from the sick room up into her own. He bade her remain there, and then return to his grandfather's bedside. In reply to his anxious questioning he was informed that the old man had fallen into a fit about an hour before, that a boy had been instantly sent for the doctor, and the patient carried to bed, but that he had not spoken since they laid him there. It would yet be an hour before the doctor could possibly arrive, and the state of the patient demanded instant attention. And withal Thurston was growing very anxious upon Marian's account. The sun was now sinking under a dark bank of clouds. The hour of his appointed meeting with her was approaching. He felt, of course, that his scheme must for the present be deferred, even if its accomplishment should again seem necessary, which was scarcely possible. But Marian would expect him, and how should he prevent her coming to the beach and waiting for him there? He did not know where a message would most likely now to find her, whether at Luckenau, at Oldfields, or at Colonel Thornton's. But he momentarily expected the arrival of Dr. Brightwell, and he resolved to leave that good man in attendance at the sick-bed, while he himself should escape for a few hours and hurry to the beach to meet and have an explanation with his wife. But an hour passed, and the doctor did not come. Thurston's eyes wandered anxiously from the distorted face of the dying man before him to the window that commanded the approach to the house, but no sign of the doctor was to be seen. The sun was on the very edge of the horizon. The sufferer before him was evidently approaching his end. Marian, he knew, must be on her way to the beach, and a dreadful storm was rising. His anxiety reached fever-heat. He could not leave the bedside of his dying relative, yet Marian must not be permitted to wait upon the beach, exposed to the fierceness of the storm, or worse, the rudeness of his own confederates. He took a sudden resolution, and wondered that he had not done so before. He resolved to summon Marian, as his wife, to his home. Full of this thought, he hastened downstairs, and ordered Melchizedek to put the horse to the gig, and get ready to go an errand. And while the boy was obeying his directions, Thurston penned the following lines to Marian. My dear Marian, my dear, generous, long-suffering wife, come to my aid. My grandfather has been suddenly stricken down with apoplexy, and is dying. The physician has not yet arrived, and I cannot leave his bedside. Return with my messenger, to assist me in taking care of the dying man. You, who are the angel of the sick and suffering, will not refuse me your aid. Come, never to leave me more. Our marriage shall be acknowledged to-morrow, to-night, any time, that you in your nicer judgment shall approve. Come, let nothing hinder you. I will send a message to Edith, to set her anxiety at rest or I will send for her to be with you here. Come to me, beloved Marian. Dictate your own conditions, if you will. Only come. He had scarcely sealed this note when the boy, hat in hand, appeared at the door. Take this note, sir. Jump in the gig and drive as fast as possible to the beach below Pine Bluffs. You will see Miss Mayfield waiting there. Give her this note, and then await her orders. 
be quicker than you ever were before said thurston hurrying his messenger off then much relieved of anxiety upon marian's account he returned to the sick-room and renewed his endeavours to relieve the patient ha ah, he was far past relief now he was stricken with death and with thurston all thoughts all feelings all interests even those connected with marian were soon lost in that awful presence it was the first time he had ever looked upon death and now in the rushing tide of his sinful passions and impetuous will he was brought face to face with this last dread all-conquering power what if it were not in his own person what if it were in the person of an old man very infirm and overripe for the great reaper it was death the final earthly end of every living creature death the demolition of the human form the breaking up of the vital functions the dissolution between soul and body the one great event that happens to all the doom certain the hour uncertain coming in infancy youth maturity as often or oftener than in age these were the thoughts that filled thurston's mind as he stood and wiped the clammy dews from the brow of the dying man thurston might have remained much longer too deeply and painfully absorbed in thought to notice the darkening of the night or the beating of the storm had not a gush of the rain and wind of unusual violence shaken the windows this recalled marian to his mind it was nearly time for her to arrive he hoped that she was near the house that she would soon be there he arose and went to the window to look forth into the night but the deep darkness prevented his seeing as the noise of the storm prevented his hearing the approach of any vehicle that might be near he went back to the bedside the old man was breathing his life away without a struggle thurston called the mulatto housekeeper to take his place and then went downstairs and out of the hall door and gazed and listened for the coming of the gig in vain he was just about to re-enter the hall and close the door when the sound of wheels dashing violently helter-skelter and with breakneck speed into the yard arrested his attention marian it is my dear marian at last but the fellow need not risk her life to save her from the storm by driving at that rate my own marian he exclaimed as he hurried out expecting to meet her melchizedek alone sprang from the gig and sank trembling and quaking at his master's feet thurston blindly pushed past him and peered and felt in the gig it was empty where is the lady sirrah what hails you why don't you answer me exclaimed thurston anxiously returning to the spot where the boy crouched but the later remained speechless trembling groaning and wringing his hands will you speak it it i ask you where is the lady was she not upon the beach what has frightened you so did the horse run away inquired thurston hurriedly in great alarm oh sir master i expect she's killed killed oh my god she has been thrown from the gig cried the young man in a piercing voice as he reeled under this blow in another instant he sprang upon the poor boy and shaking him furiously cried in a voice of mingled grief rage and anxiety where was she thrown where is she how did it happen oh villain villain you shall pay for this with your life come and show me the spot instantly instantly oh master have mercy sir twasn't long on me and the gig it happened of she were parted when i got there where where good heavens where asked thurston nearly beside himself on the beach sir 
just as I got down there. I jumped out in the gig and walked along, and then I couldn't see my way, and I turned the bull-eye up the lantern on the sand afore me, and oh, Martha, go on, go on. I seen the lady lying like dead, and a man jump up and run away, and when I went nigh, I seen her all welkering in her blood, and this here lying by her. And the boy handed a small poniard to his master. It was Thurston's own weapon that he had lost some months previous in the woods of Luckenough. It was a costly and curious specimen of French taste and ingenuity. The handle was of pearl, carved in imitation of a swordfish, and the blade corresponded to the long pointed beak that gives the fish that name. Thurston scarcely noticed that it was his dagger, but pushing the boy aside he ran to the stables, saddled a horse with the swiftness of thought, threw himself into his stirrups, and galloped furiously away towards the beach. The rain was now falling in torrents, and the wind driving it in fierce gusts against his face. The tempest was at its very height, and it seemed at times impossible to breast the blast. It seemed as though steed and rider must be overthrown. Yet he lashed and spurred his horse, and struggled desperately on, thinking with fierce anguish of Marian, his Marian, lying wounded, helpless, alone and dying, exposed to all the fury of the winds and waves upon that tempestuous coast, and dreading with horror, lest before he should be able to reach her, her helpless form, still living, might be washed off by the advancing waves. Thus he spurred and lashed his horse, and drove him against rain and wind, and through the darkness of the night. With all this desperate haste, it was two hours before he approached the beach, and as he drew near, the heavy cannonading of the waves upon the shore admonished him that the tide was at its highest point. He pressed rapidly onward, threw himself from his horse, and ran forward to the edge of the bank above the beach. It was only to meet the confirmation of his worst fears. The waters were thundering against the bank upon which he stood. The tide had come in and overswept the whole beach, and now, lashed and driven by the wind, the waves tossed and raved and roared with appalling fury. Marian was gone, lost, swept away by the waves. That was the thought that wrung from him a cry of fierce agony, piercing through all the discord of the storm and as he ran up and down the shore, hoping nothing, expecting nothing, yet totally unable to tear himself from the fatal spot. And so he wildly walked and raved, until his garments were drenched through with the rain, until the storm exhausted its fury and subsided, until the changing atmosphere, the still, severe cold, froze all his clothing stiff around him. So he walked, groaning and crying and calling despairingly upon the name of Marian, until the night waned and the morning dawned, and the eastern horizon grew golden, then crimson, then fiery with the coming sun. The sky was clear, the waters calm, the sands bare and glistening in the early sunbeams. No vestige of the storm or of the bloody outrage of the night remained. All was peace and beauty. In the distance was a single snow-white sail, floating swan-like on the bosom of the blue waters. All around was beauty and peace, yet from the young man's tortured bosom peace had fled, and remorse, vulture-like, had struck its talons deep into his heart. He called himself a murderer, the destroyer of Marian, 
He said it was his selfishness, his wilfulness, his treachery that had exposed her to this danger, and brought her to this fate. Some outlaw, some waterman or fugitive negro had robbed and murdered her. Marian usually wore a very valuable watch. Probably also she had money about her person, enough to have tempted the cupidity of some lawless wretch. He shrank in horror from pursuing conjecture. It was worse than torture, worse than madness to him. Oh, blindness and frenzy! Why had he not thought of these dangers so likely to beset her solitary path? Why had he so recklessly exposed her to them? Vain questions, alas! Vain as was his self-reproach, his anguish, and despair. End of chapter 26 The Body on the Beach Recording by Sandra Luna